So as I mentioned, uh, I'd like to speak tonight about the governing laws of the mind. And to understand that there are laws that govern the mind, just like there are laws, physical laws, that govern the earth. But you begin to learn that either you work in harmony with these laws or you work at odds with the mind. And um, you'll get feedback pretty quickly if you're working against uh, the laws that govern the mind. Um, Now, mostly we discover these laws kind of by trial and error. Uh, And I think even uh, self-based professions like therapists, and I say that without any um, judgment at all, uh, have some in, uh, some understanding of how the mind works and how how it's how it what governs it, <clears throat> but the principle that holds all of these laws is not understood, and it's a little bit. I mean, I you know we <clears throat> you can live on the earth a long time picking apples up from the ground before you realize it's the principle of gravity, and we have kind of worked our ways into some of these um, laws of the mind without understanding the very principle. When you understand the principle, the whole thing makes complete sense. And as meditators, as we begin to enter the experiential quality of the mind, you begin to see immediately the principles that operate within uh, the mind and the laws that then uh, spring forth from those principles. Principles, <clears throat> and the principle that I can remember—it's one of those uh, experiences uh, that you have that you know where you are when you've had it because it's the revelation. <clears throat> uh, even though, as I speak about it, um, most of you have probably had some inkling of that revelation already—that it's not really too surprising. But when you see it conclusively rather than piecemeal, it does hold a rather startling uh, exposure to the fact as well as implications associated with that fact that you can't deny. So what is that principle? Very simply stated, the sense of you is part of the mental process. It is not separate from it. The the you, you, you do not have a mind. said differently, you are not out of your mind. You may be out of your mind, (laughs) figuratively speaking, but literally, you are not separate from it. So you're not out of it. But that's how we continually frame the problem. We, the sense of me, is having a mental experience. And somehow the me is bigger than that mental experience. Now, you begin to see that just the opposite is true. That the sense of me is a mental experience. That the mind contains the sense of me. And that you and your mind are not two things. Now, that's that 
may seem obvious to you, but what are the implications of that? Problems result when part of the mind thinks it has a problem with a different part of the mind, and therefore it is in some form of aggression or compensation or desire or fear in relationship to the other mental process that it sees. So it's two hemispheres fighting against one another. The me part, the part that you, for various reasons, ascribe as being you, quite likely because they contain uh, the, the thoughts and the ideals that you want to have pervasive in the whole mind. And then there's a part of the mind that doesn't hold that pervasive ideal. And it's the recalcitrant part. So this part of the mind efforts itself to try to get over that part of the mind. You see, it makes no sense at all when you look at it as a single, a single organ. And what, what effort makes no sense at all, does it from that point of view? How can one mental process get over another mental process? Through its will, which is a mental process. So what happens, what are the implications in our practice about that fact? And I hope all of us can begin seeing that fact. Where do you reside? The implications of effort, what it means in terms of efforting. You're going to let one side berate, berate another side? Are you go, what, just, you're going to let one side turn its back on another side? Try to exclude it from things? A single organ. What about seeing the whole story? What about not taking sides? What about leaving the argument to the mind? Be more mature. <laughs> <laughs> He did too say that. No, he didn't. I don't like that about myself. There's a maturity of a whole that just doesn't... You know, when two kids are squabbling, you just don't need to... And that sense of complete completion where the haves... You see, when we invest energy in one stake, one mental process over the other, when we invest it, that's the whole of how problems arise. It's the whole story. And we are trying to work out our salvation by taking up the argument of one side. Now it's the spiritual side. I shouldn't be talking like this. I wish my thoughts would go away. <laughs> See, it, it, so that's the principle. Not to. 
that it's a, a single mental process and to see the whole, to see the whole of that. Awareness is not fractured. Awareness, if it isn't invested in one side of the argument, can see both sides, can see the complete story. But the toing and froing, trying to get it right, never ever ceases because from one part of the mind, which is determined to squash the other part, and that other part can't be squashed, it keeps coming forward because it's a mental process, it's not a thing. So that's the principle that's missed in most healthcare, if not all healthcare fields. But what are the laws that come out of that principle? Because the laws are fun, and many of these we already know. The first law of the mind. The more you avoid something, the more you ensure its return. Lincoln said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. A a mind divided against itself cannot stand. The more we invest in not having something, the more you ensure its return. Isn't that interesting? I find that very interesting. It also has a component part on what seems to be external situations. When I was in Asia, uh, I I was standing on the porch of my little hut and I saw this thing and I, the monk next to me, I was a monk, I, I said, what is that? That looks like the incarnation of evil to me. And it was a centipede about yay long and it was ghastly. It it wiggled and it had it raised up on its back. It's not like centipedes we have here. It raised up on its back and caught a, like a dragonfly out of this thin air, Bonk, like that. And it has pinchers, like ice pinchers. You know these old ice things you lifted big cubes of ice with. That's what it had underneath its thing. And I said, oh my God, I've never seen anything like that in my life. And I knew I had had a whole karmic history with this thing. I don't know how I knew it, but I was like, oh my God, I've never had that kind of reaction to an insect before. So lo and behold, one night I was in my little hut. First of all, no stories about anyone else running up against these things. But then I was in my hut and I hear this munch, munch, crunch, crunch. I turn on my flashlight and the shelf is about like two feet over my head and there is a centipede hanging on its back legs about like this from my head eating a scorpion. (laughs) This is not going to (laughs) work. And eventually I got bitten by one. I just knew it was going to happen. I might as well have said, take a bite now. Let's save ourselves. The... <laughs> so... 
And it was, I just, I just knew it. And it was because of the tension associated with that particular, that particular thing. But my wife has another, he, she doesn't like um, spiders, she doesn't like things like scorpions, she doesn't like, you know, she's, she doesn't like those things. Not, <laughs> So we were in Houston, we were in, uh, outside of Houston and at a meditation center and she was cooking. I was teaching. Uh, she gets into bed and lo and behold, a scorpion is in bed and bitter. So I, it just amazed me because that doesn't happen. So I went to the, and there were like uh, maybe 50 or 60 people in the hall and I said, has anyone, and most of these people have spent their life in Texas, ever been bitten by a scorpion? Not a single hand raised. And there it was, because she has such tension, such avoidance around that particular thing. At home, she pushes, puts her hand in the basement down where she was doing some work. She gets bitten by a hobo spider. A hobo spider is one of those like black widow brown recluse, hobo. They're all very venomous. Half the bites of a hobo spider are dry bites. They don't insert the venom. And that happened to be, she had gotten bitten in a dry bite. But it's, you, we bring, the point of all this is that you, we bring these things forth, forth in us. We bring the circumstances of what it is that we most fear to us in the same way as we also bring what we desire to us. And you can certainly see that in the mind itself, can't you? You can't decide your content. You can't. If I told you, everybody sit still, but don't think the word apple. <laughs> to a person, there would be 35 apples being thought. You, you can't decide what is going to be in this thing. See, because the principle, remember the principle behind it, is that the aversion response doesn't do anything to the thing itself. It just, it gives it more charge. When something has more charge, it's, it's spring-loaded. And you assure its return. <clears throat> Therefore, you can't bypass anything. You can't decide to navigate around anything. And you begin to understand very quickly where problems come from. The aversion themselves create problems. And you realize from this principle that investing aversion into a problem will multiply its complexity and difficulty. And so you see what you have available to you as your options. You can desire something, which will bring it forth. You can fear something and avoid it, which will bring it forth. Or you can release it to be what it is. You can cease the argument. like uh, anger. You can't decide you're not going to be angry. I, I'm not going to be angry anymore. I've decided to give that up. 
That's just wonderful. Because if there's any charge to that decision, besides an understanding and a realignment to what it really is, and to cease the argument, to cease the argument, you have to understand what it really is. It can't be bothersome. If it's bothersome, there's still argument and therefore still aversion or charge associated with it. And ultimately, the best the mind can hope for is to eliminate it from sight. Which means that there's so much charge that it's repressed. Which just means we have made it unconscious because we are so afraid of it. Again, the argument is still there, but it comes out in different forms. What do we think Christ meant when he said, resist not evil? You see, that makes complete sense from the principle of not to in the mind. Because resistance brings it forth. Hold yourself in moral retribution for acts you've done. You assure the continuity and sustaining quality of those actions. So we need to get that principle down very thoroughly. We need to remember in order to relocate the premise from which all of this comes is derived, that there is no you separate from the mental process we are having, that we are a part of that process. The second law, we cannot force the mind to bring forth what is hidden. Have you ever forgotten something? Had something on the tip of your tongue? The worst thing you can do is try to figure out what it is, as if you could bring it forth. But rather, if you just release the tension and the neediness, or start to just say, oh, I forgot what I was going to say, and then you start conversing, and then it comes back, not from force of will, but from being left alone. The mind just doesn't work under pressure. Because what is pressure? But the sense of self creating more mental tension for it. More aversion, more resistance. Or the, one of the more common ways we fall into this trap is wanting an old experience back. Having a great sitting and wanting to bring it forth again. Having that experience, trying to recover it doesn't work. And what wants to recover it anyway? It's just the part of the mind that liked it. One of the things I hear often in uh, beginning level groups is uh, that uh, they, they'll hear somebody in the group that who's having an array of different emotions often volatile, and the person next to them isn't having any emotions at all and wondering what's wrong with their sitting 
when they're not having any emotions and wants to have emotions. The person who's having volatile emotions doesn't want the emotions that they're having. They would like to be the person next to them. And so both of them are charging themselves up for the fall of the very thing. We don't have to go looking. We don't have to go digging. All we have to do, I, I like the image of keeping our vision at uh, water level. So we're at a lake and we're, we have our eyes right on the surface of the lake. We don't have to go under and try to bring the fish forward. All we have to do is watch them jump. All we have to do is just watch them break the surface and go back into it. We don't have to follow them down. Just keep the eyes at eyes level. Keep the, keep the observation at that level. And then relax and be soft. Because that will bring everything up. It's the tension that keeps it down and tucked away. It keeps it charged. That's also true for forgiveness. You can't force yourself to forgive. See how the, these, the implication of this is really... You could write a book on this particular principle if you wanted. But forgiveness, for instance, you know, in the guilt and shame associated with forgiveness and we try to do all the things that we can possibly do to forgive something that has happened and we just get all charged up about our our forgiveness forgiveness requires an alignment you don't we don't fool ourselves by saying that we didn't do it we don't try to rearrange the facts so that we can rationalize our way out of it we sit there with what we did and the mistake we might have made and we feel the pain of what is, has occurred. And we hold all of that. And what comes forth when we don't try to readjust the content to make it look ourselves look better than we were is that there comes a, a gentleness with that whole. As it loses its charge, a gentleness comes. And an ease. It doesn't mean that you now no longer believe you did it. You know you did it. But your ease, there's an easement with oneself of having made a mistake, and that's okay. It's okay. Minds do that. And then there's a resolution, a resolution in the charge associated with it. The guilt, the shame, the digging, the breast beating, all of that just complicates it and it ensures its volatility for years to come. You see, we can't be, the other thing we can't force on the mind, we can't be readier than we are. We can't be more generous than we are. We can't be more loving than we are. I have to be more loving. What has to be more loving? The part of the mind that doesn't feel that. See, the way to bring love, connectedness together is to, is to cease the squabbling. It's only because the two hemispheres of the mind are torturously at odds to one another that no love can be felt. When they come back together under awareness, then there is love, all the love that you need, all the generosity you can hold. And that we're always feeling 
um, undernourished in something, needing replenishment in something. With we look at our minds with scarcity because we feel that's an also a mental assumption in the mind. We feel we're inadequate, and so we are driven back time and time again, asserting that assumption on the whole of the mind, no matter what the mind brings up. It brings up generosity, I'm not generous enough. It brings up love, I'm not loving enough. We see things from the scarcity of the assumption about me, which is a mental process. The corollary to that is patience. Patience. That's the non-squabbling. That's the relaxed attention, the caring attention that doesn't side-take. The third law, similar to these laws, but there are slight differences, you cannot eliminate anything through force of will. You can't eliminate any part of your mind through force of will. It's a closed system. And to understand it's a closed system means that you can't get rid of your suffering. There's no elimination. There's no overpowering. In fact, you can't change yourself through force of will. The only way that change can occur is when you understand, when these two halves are understood. And when they come together, there is a new possibility from them coming together. As long as they're uh, separate and distinct and at odds, there's no resolution to that in terms of what one side wants eventually to become that the other side isn't willing to cough up. Only understanding affects change. This is why wisdom works, because wisdom is non-divisive. Wisdom is understanding. And then you see from not side-taking, you see what needs to be done. And since you're no longer fixated within the particular argument, the options are endless and the potential is equally infinite. Not when you're in, in one side over the other side, then you're, you're lost within the dispute and the qualities contained within that dispute. But when the dispute is seen as a mental process, like all other things that we are watching this week, what difference does it make? It says nothing. Have you ever had a song go on in your head? Hmm. You can't get rid of it, can you? You'd love to go and smash the jukebox. Okay, so here's how you do it. You know the phrase, face the music? We have to face the music. You go to the jukebox and you stand there and you don't sing along with it. And you feel all the things you wished you would get from it as part 
and you feel the music at the same time. You feel it as a whole. And when that charge doesn't ignite, it's, it's if when there's a charge between the two, you're either singing along with it, you're, you're keep punching J2. <laughs> or when you're at odds with it, you keep punching that number. Or thoughts. Can't get rid of thoughts, can you? Why? Because that which wants to get rid of thoughts is another thought. So you're going to throw gasoline on the fire to make the fire die down. The corollary to that is very important. It's to see what you are, what you get from it, what, what you, how it, how it's satisfying a particular desire level, a particular need, and the limitation, the wisdom to see both sides of the issue. When we see both sides of the issue, then the resolution within understanding terminates the problem. So we have the fourth law. We cannot meet the mind with the same energy it is emitting. You can't get irritated at your anger and expect your anger to go away. See, makes sense? See, doesn't it make sense when you understand the principle? Or control. This is one. People say, well, I'm... You'd say, you know, just relax and be with the breath, but I'm controlling the breath. I don't want to control the breath. I said, well, you've got part of your mind that is controlling the breath and part of your mind that doesn't want to control the breath. That part of the mind is trying to control the control by not controlling. How are you going to do that? You keep throwing mud at each other. What are you going to do? Well... I don't know. What if you didn't care? What if you didn't care that you were controlling? Genuinely didn't care. So that there wasn't any investment in either side. When you're controlling, you're controlling. When you're not controlling, you're not controlling. So neither was invested in. So there was no issue. Then the control ends. See how it works? And the corollary to this is love, because love is the healing energy that brings both halves together, also called understanding. You are offering the greatest gift of love when you offer your understanding in the situation. And you offer your understanding to the mind, that's the gift of love to those particular factions of dispute. Love does something else. Love frees experience from the story. Because what's happening when we have a story, we usually have an emotion. And the emotion is disagreeable to some sense of another part of the mind. I don't like this emotion. So we cast a story that depicts why it is that we have to feel this emotion. Johnny did this to me and I... All of the details that come back inform us why I have to feel this emotion. It's The story is often trying to 
justify having to even feel this emotion through the analysis of the content that says, who can I blame for having this thing? But when there is love, when there is just awareness, the experience can't, we can't keep investing the story into the experience because the experience itself doesn't need any resolution. It's being held for what it is. It's not, there's no tension around it. The experience of the emotion, there's no tension around it. And therefore, it doesn't invite a justification. And therefore, the story dies and we have just the residue of the feeling as it long as it lasts, which isn't very long. The fifth law. These are not all inclusive. There are probably another 3,000 laws, but we're just, look, we're just looking at some of the ones that pop up frequently. Fifth law is a good one. I like this one. It's all or nothing. Can, you can leave nothing, nothing of yourself behind. You can cut no part of yourself off and claim that it uh, doesn't exist. You take the whole of the mind or you have divisiveness because you're cherry-picking the mind, deciding what qualities you think are spiritual and you want to enjoy, leaves the rest of the mind in tension with those very qualities. And therefore, you will have a field of problems through that So it's all or nothing. And understanding that the range of one's consciousness contains the whole of all human mental responses. So you have all of what Mother Teresa had in her as well as what Adolf Hitler had in him. That's it. To more or less degree. Because the amount that you have festered and fostered those things, but the range is exactly the same. Have you not seen it? You tell me that there's no place in you that could kill? Or that is as tender as the butterfly wing? You see, we've got to get used to this thing. It's a whole garbage heap. And you take it all and you go, okay, that's it. Nothing's left out. No child left behind. (laughs) You see, here's an example of how we forget that law. You're in a good disposition. You've just come back from retreat. A friend next door says, would you mind watching my dog? I'm going away for the weekend. And in your love, light-hearted loveliness, in your altruistic spirit, you say yes. And inside you think, damn, I really wanted a quiet weekend. I didn't want to follow this dog around and have to, you know, scoop up its poo or whatever you have to do. And so there's this area that you don't acknowledge in yourself. You acknowledge the love side because that's the beautiful side. I mean, it's, it's been 
fostered on retreat, you feel love is the answer. (laughs) And so you're going to go with that. right? And uh, you're going to let that resentful side just not be heard. But that resentful side begins to grow as the trials and tribulations of caring for that dog is made known. And pretty soon you're angry and you're resentful because you've never honored the complete story. You've denied, you've wanted yourself to be so open-hearted that you can say yes to anything. And that's not the fact. And we don't honor the fact. We honor the ideal. If I really had it together, I could say yes without resentment. That's not true. And so then we're caught in the bind of the mind. You getting a sense of this? Okay, so the last one is, oh, the corollary to uh, no child left behind is not two. It's all or nothing. There's not two. I can't divide. I can't leave out. I can't postpone. I can't. You, it's like this. It's it's the beautiful um, open arms at on the at the uh, Sermon of the Mount. It's embracing all things. It's the Bodhisattva. Embracing all things, all things. And why would you ever want to embrace all things? Not You wouldn't until you find that they're harmless. And you'll never find that as long as you're bickering internally about what it is that you think you should be and what you're not. And you hold yourself in contempt because you're not what you think a full-grown, mature human being should be. And so you're denying the complete access of the whole of the consciousness. And so when you hold yourself in contempt, there will be parts of the mind that you fear so much that will be harmful when they arise. Because not of them, but because of the fear of them. That's what creates the reactivity, not the thing itself. And so as we are looking at the mind for it being what it is, without adding any judgment to it, which is the opposite. You see, what all the instructions are towards the whole of the mind. Don't judge. Don't argue. Don't invest hostility. Just see. Just see. Because seeing is whole. It's not side-taking. But we get in there and play the part out. How come I'm still talking? What am I doing? What am I going to do that? I've got to change this. I'm still not there. I'm still not there. I'm still not there. I'm almost there now, but now I'm not there. (laughs) That's just a thought. the whole of the mind. Forget that. You're not going to find it through our thinking. We're not going to find it through one side berating the other until it's so devastated that it gives up and becomes holy. (laughs) I surrender, I guess. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It comes through seeing the harmlessness, seeing the mind pitted against itself. A a mind divided against itself cannot stand. 
doesn't come through winning the argument. It comes through ceasing argument. Cease the side-taking. Which brings us to the sixth and final law. You cannot strategize your way to transcendence. I want you to feel that for a second. It's not based on your efforts. Because efforts just fracture, isn't it? If you want to put your efforts, put your efforts into being whole and complete. Into total awareness. Don't invite any other effort into your practice. It will make you perhaps feel good for a while until the other side gains advantage, which it will, dependent upon the amount of invested fear you have in that side over the other side. You, we get away with nothing. We can get away with nothing. Just awareness. Trusting awareness. Without boundaries. Awareness forms no boundaries. It splits, does not split one side against the other. It forms no levels of resistance to anything. In that, the mind heals itself in wholeness. Nothing's changed. And everything has changed. That is all that needs to be done. See that who and what you think you are is and always has been and always will be a mental process. No different than the experience you're having or the thought that's arising or the emotion that's occurring. That there is no you having experience. You are an experience. And then be done with experience. Put it to rest. Let it come back into what it wants to be, which is a whole thing. It never wanted to be divided. It was our reflective need to hold what we are expressing and manifesting in contempt because of the history we've had and the judgments we've induced. And then through those judgments, we keep side-taking when issues come up within ourselves that we cannot tolerate. We keep driving a stake through our heart. So I see that. No more. called waking up to what we already are. And the only reason you see too when you look out of your eyes is because of the argument that you have internally. That's why two arises. Cease that and two no longer comes forth.
may all beings see one. Can we sit for a minute or two?